Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to episode 17 of Science Town. The global ocean covers over 70% of our blue planet, and yet we know vanishingly little about what lies below the surface. This was brought home recently in a paper published in the journal Science about the soundscape of the Anthropocene. Human activity has disrupted the way the ocean naturally sounds with both silent and deadly implications. In this episode, we speak with the artists, researchers, and advocates who are trying to preserve the natural cacophony of our oceans, to protect biodiversity, and ultimately, to save humanity from its noisy self. Enjoy. Since I was a kid, I've always been uh, interested in, uh, you know, how we are treating the planet and been very concerned yeah. with this. That's artist Jenna Winderen. And I grew up by the ocean, so um, I was already very uh, concerned with the underwater environment and excited to read books about explorers, you know, and to the unknown, you know. So... Um, I studied to become a marine biologist, but then I changed my studies into um, art. So I started to work with with sound. I had worked for a few years with um, sensors, and um, I started to work also with um, with contact microphones and started to look into hydrophones and actually to record underwater uh, with them. It just opened up an enormously fascinating and inspiring soundscape there. Mm -hmm. And I started to listen, you know, and every time I went back, I heard a new sound, a new creature, you know, a crustacean or a fish or a mammal echolocating or these all these different things you, you start to uh, to hear and pay attention to. Do you often work with scientists in particular? I have all along been discussing with marine biologists that also works with sound underwater. I met Carlos Duarte at the research ship in the Arctic. Okay. In, yeah, he was in 16, I think it was 17. Uh, I was working on a project called Spring Bloom in the Marginal Ice Zone. I was very interested to learn more about what is happening there in the whole uh, water column and how it is a very important carbon sink. And I spoke with all the scientists on board and I went out recording and this was the first time I recorded a bearded seal.
which was fascinating. I was just, you know, lowering the hydrophones into the water and all this kind of singing tone game. They sort of, oh, you know, the beautiful tone. And I'm like, you know, what is this? And right in front of me was this big head of a <laughs> bearded seal sticking out of the water, looking right at me, you know. So how, how did it come to pass that you recorded and, and created this soundscape for this? Um, how, did, how did the composition come about? Um, he invited me to Kaust to come along uh, as part of the group that were um, uh, starting to work with this paper. And uh, we were talking about it would be good to have a sound uh, to actually be able to listen to what we are talking about in the paper. When you approach a composition, um, do you have a, a particular thing that you're trying to accomplish, whether that's getting people to uh, see in an auditory sense uh, uh, something that they're not able to see, or is it more of an advocacy thing where you're, you're trying to advocate for, as you said, the, the health of the oceans? I think, of course, the most important thing for me is also to put attention to these to the soundscapes underwater and the importance for the creatures underwater to be able to um, hear each other yeah. and to hear their predators or to orientate themselves they need to have the soundscape not totally masked by human made sound and these kind of broadband engine sounds or massive amount of you know the shipping lanes where shipping goes on all the time or the military sonars with the enormous intensity of the sound. For me, it's important to point towards these issues and making people aware of it. What's your process for building one of these compositions? Do you have a few sounds that you sort of fall in love with as you're doing the recordings and then you build them around them or uh, give, give us a sense for that? So I will build this often in like three layers and it consists of many, many, many separate recordings. And um, I will keep the, the animal sounds as clear and audible as possible in the mix. So mm. that, uh, because it's important for me that people can actually hear it as I hear them out there. Because you learn so much about this kind of listening and listening and listening again. And uh, uh, so what I would do then to make transitions between the different species and find out which would, uh, you know, work together. And um, but of course, this composition is intensified from, you know, it's not from one particular area. This is going really from from cold to warmer to more estuaries to uh, open more open water. It's uh, from the Arctic to the tropic, and then. Uh, with a lot of uh, human-created sounds towards the end there, but then it comes yeah. back with a uh, school of fish, a shoal of fish, right. um, and rain on the surface uh, of the water. Uh, were there any other surprising things that happened or sounds that you just really uh, keep going back to um, that appear in this uh, soundtrack? I would say 
a sound that is towards the end there and this is a where, where, where this kind of massive amount of it sounds like it's totally layered i was out recording at night and it was in south of thailand i think this is tiger perch it just was a full full massive amount of fish uh, i could also hear different species in that recording it was the biodiversity i never heard before in one place it was quite a surprise for me and uh, a joy to experience I was really curious about that. Da, 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 yeah. da. This is the shoal of fish huh. uh, that you can hear. This, this, this right. sounds, yeah. I guess that woo, 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 sort of sound is a ship far off or a, a, a man made noise. I would say that all of the sounds that are in there are coming from hydrophone recordings, but uh, some of them are um, very much stretched to give also the sort of atmosphere of it. So it's not all directly not processed. There's one sound that to me sounds like sort of metal on metal, mm -hmm. uh, which is like, that is a seal scare audio device. Okay. It's like installed around fish farms to scare seals away. And, and this is also seemed to be quite, quite uh, hurtful for um, harbor porpoises and, and dolphins, actually. They, uh, they get very stressed by this sound uh, because it goes on like 24 hours every, every day. And they could really rather have um, anti-predator nets around these fish farms, you know. But right. this uh, is something that we're quite sort of engaged with here in Norway because the Norwegian fish industry, it's massive and it's growing. What's perhaps your, your sort of favorite sound on here? I, I, I particularly, um, that crackling underwater sound of the crustaceans, I think is really very interesting because you, you don't think that these little creatures could en masse make such a noise. How did, how did you even come to know that that's what that sound was? Yes, I mean, it's something when you start recording underwater, you will hear it a lot mm. and everywhere. And you do get curious of what it is and who is always making these kind of crackling sounds. The source is, is often snapping shrimp, I think, because there are very many different species of snapping shrimp. They're using their claw to make this uh, pressure wave. Uh, but it's also, I believe, over the years, finding that it's barnacles, it is also, you know, it's fish uh, crushing uh, shells. Mm. It is sometimes you hear it more like a kind of chewing sound and that also is crackling. I think there's many sources for this crackling uh, sound and it does also vary a lot. When you start to listen, you can hear it being very different on the coast of Norway to Panama to Belize, you know, the, 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 there is a particular character at each place. And if you go up further around in the mangroves, you will hear it differently than you do, um, you know, in around a coral reef, for example. Mm. And I was, I think in 2010, I was sort of suggesting that, you know, we could listen to the health 
of a coral reef by um, you know listening to how lively this sound variety was. So I've I was been working with that idea for some time. There's a um, the sense that perhaps you're in some way saving for posterity uh, an artifact. Uh, it's it's in a way like this um, audio fossil that that may not uh, continue to live into the future. Um, is that part of what's uh, driving your your creation of these soundscapes? Yeah, no, but I, of course there is an urgency about this, and we need to actually make some radical changes, and, and it needs to happen now. And I think this is, of course, if it can be that feeling that it evokes uh, people's um, understanding when people get to know more and are presented with how it is. I do think people would want to change and do something about it, you know? Science Town. Brought to you by Kaust. Well, so the term Anthropocene was coined by Paul Crutzen, who's a Nobel laureate. Uh, that was one of the uh, three that were created with uh, the discovery of the processes leading to the hole in the in the ocean layer. And he coined the term Anthropocene to refer to a period in the in the history of the planet Earth where uh, a new force was now uh, ruling most of the processes that govern the functioning of the biosphere. That's Carlos Duarte. He's a distinguished professor of marine science at KAUST. And that force is human uh, action and human uh, pressures on the environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Anthropocene has been examined from multiple perspectives, uh, but one that had not been addressed is what is the soundscape of the Anthropocene? What is the footprint of human ac activities on the soundscape, uh, and particularly on the ocean soundscape? Because uh, in the ocean, noise is propagated much faster and much farther than it does on land. So then what steps led you to kick off this research with this team of folks? Yeah, so I, I've been a scuba diver for research uh, uh, for a long time, nearly, nearly well, not nearly, four decades. And uh, I spent about 3,000 hours underwater or something like that. I see. And uh, so I have developed an empathy with marine life for the, for the uh, exposure to noise because I have my myself been exposed to all kinds of noises, some of them very disturbing, yeah. like uh, dynamite blasts in the Philippines where they are using uh, dynamite to uh, fish uh, uh, coral reef fish. And in most of my dives, then there's been some sort of noise. Mm -hmm. So that is a constant uh, feature of the, of the soundscape. And I was surprised how this was not uh, being better considered in assessments of global uh, human pressures on the ocean. So then I decided to take it upon ourselves at Kaus to do that. And then we conveyed a workshop uh, two years ago 
to bring together these uh, interdisciplinary perspectives because it spans all the way from evolution of hearing involving neurobiologists, physical sonographers looking at uh, the acoustics of, uh, of, of the ocean and how physical properties of the ocean affect uh, sound propagation, marine biologists looking at uh, the role of sound in the uh, ecology and behavior of animals, and uh, marine ecologists looking at how habitat degradation affect uh, soundscapes and how it relates to ocean health. Uh, scientists with a more broader focus on uh, global uh, ocean and anthropocene issues, and even a multimedia artist, uh, a computer scientist, and a scientist working with complex systems. So that was a really broad array of scientists, and I believe that from now onwards we are in a better footing to avoid this uh, acoustic elephant in the room. I think you've pretty conclusively shown that anthropogenic noise is a negative force uh, for the health of the oceans. Now that it's been identified, do you plan to advocate for changes at the, you know, extranational and, and perhaps global level? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that uh, that should be translated into uh, actions by policymakers to improve the ocean soundscape as a integral uh, component of ocean health. In fact, I, w I am a member of the expert panel that supports the high-level panel for a sustainable ocean economy, which is a group of 12 nations that the UN commissioned with uh, preparing the agenda to be shared with, uh, with the whole community of UN uh, member states to uh, commit to actions to lead to a healthy ocean. Mm -hmm. So our paper was published just on time to be incorporated into the discussions and processes that uh, will be conducive to an agenda of ocean action. Um, COP26 is coming up in Glasgow. Is that uh, something that's going to be part of your focus? Well, COP26 is really an important milestone, and the oceans will be uh, very prominently on the oceans, on the climate agenda, because now there's far better awareness of the importance of uh, ocean-based actions as solutions to climate change. And also, uh, uh, the problem of noise is aggravated by climate change in different ways. Coral reefs, for instance, are impacted by heat waves with climate change. Uh, then this affects the soundscape of these ecosystems profoundly. So my co-authors uh, describe how the global bleaching event that impacted the Great Barrier Reef between 2015 and 17 led to a fourfold decline in the in the soundscape of the reef. Mm. So the acoustic level of organisms doing their thing in the reef decreased to 25% of the original signal before bleaching. Right. And they determined how this actually affected the capacity of uh, larvae and small uh, juvenile fish and invertebrates that are wandering in drifting with currents to hear the call home from the reef and be able to navigate there, which is that critical state where they have to move from drifting in the plankton as, as eggs and then larvae and juveniles to actually settle in their habitats. Mm. So it uh, affects their movement and uh, also affects their, their use of the habitat because they might be removed from significant yeah. fractions of their habitat, which become too noisy. But it's not just that they go away, it's that they're giving up uh, giving up opportunities to breed and use uh, resources, and the population mm -hmm. size is, 
is reduced because the scope for for food resources is uh, reduced. But then they they are also impacted on their behavior. They're impacted in their capacity to, to detect and avoid predators, to feed and and find prey, and they're also impacted on their reproductive behavior. And those cumulative impacts then weaken the organisms and reduce their resistance and resilience to cope with other uh, stresses in the marine environment. One of your colleagues uh, posted this time-lapse of shipping lanes in the Atlantic and uh, a whale that had been tagged. And and it was mesmerizing. I, I watched it probably 10 times. This poor whale <laughs> sort of avoiding these shipping lanes. Uh, so in a way, sound serves to carve up their natural environment and hem them in. So how, how can we use what we now know about sound in the environment to reorient the way that we use the ocean and perhaps mm. even when we have to do things that are noisy, protect the yeah. environment. Yeah, so that, that was a, a, an important focus of the paper. It's not just to document the, the impacts and their consequences, but also highlight the solutions. And the solutions are readily available and already, uh, to the most part, already tested and ready to be deployed. is uh, shipping and uh, the transport of uh, goods and uh, also fishing vessels in the ocean. So they, because that happens 24-7 yeah. and it happens at global scales. And uh, then if we start by doing a triage and taking action on the, on the actions and elements that contribute most to, uh, to noise in the ocean, we will target about 15% of the of the fleet of uh, merchant vessels and fishing vessels, because those 15% are contributing more than half of the total noise. And it will just take a uh, change their propellers for propellers that avoid cavitation and are better designed to reduce the sound greatly. And in fact, uh, the shipping company Maersk, which is the largest company in the world, they actually retrofitted five of the largest uh, container vessels to change the uh, change their uh, propellers, and they found not only that the sound decreased as they were expecting, but also they found that the vessel became more energy efficient, <laughs> which then re led yeah. to economic benefits, so, so uh, lower the cost of transport, but also reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases from from the vessels, and also even the materials used to build the vessels that rather than create noise when uh, interacting with waves and tur ocean turbulence they should be uh, using materials that absorb that uh, pressure and uh, do not do not uh, generate uh, noise. So that's one very easy solution that also makes sense from an economic perspective. One other solution is that seismic uh, surveys, which are surveys where uh, typically in assessments of uh, marine geology, but also oil and gas uh, surveys, then uh, vessels uh, fire uh, cannons uh, of uh, compressed air 
and that uh, impact then creates a trembling of the seafloor that propagates down several kilometers below the, the sea surface, and then uh, they're able from that trembling to, to document the density structure of the seafloor and detect where there might be a putative a gas and oil a reservoirs. Uh, but in, in fact, uh, there's a new technology called vibrosase, which was developed for land, but it's being adjusted for the ocean where rather than doing that from the surface and then impacting all animals that are swimming around, then these vehicles crawl in the seafloor and then impact mechanically the seafloor to detect those vibrations. But actually a week after we published our report, then Science uh, also published a paper where researchers showed that even the singing of whales can actually be used to uh, reconstruct the structure of the seafloor so that we don't need seismic uh, surveys at all and we can just partner with the whales to impact the seafloor with the energy from their songs and then we can listen to those uh, waves propagate and reconstruct the structure of the seafloor so we don't need very expensive uh, seismic vessels to do surveys, we can just work with whales. Help us imagine what the oceans sounded like before the Industrial Revolution, because I guess that's kind of the point at which we're talking about things started to get noisy. Yeah, so we can maybe have two vignettes of how this may have uh, sounded because the ocean soundscapes also differ with setting and ecosystems. <laughs> so let's take, for instance, on a polar ocean, and I work with uh, my co-author and friend Jana Winderen, who's a multimedia artist, we, our first interaction was actually working together on board a research vessel in the Arctic, and then we released a DVD on the on the spring bloom in the marginal ice zone, which is really about how how the soundscape of the Arctic changes as the marine life uh, wakes up with the first light in the Arctic, and uh, that was uh, very close to what a pristine soundscape might have been. These sounds were composed of uh, seals calling under the ice. It would be composed of whales singing also and uh, the sound of belugas. And there will be uh, prominent uh, contributors to the soundscape, but also the ice itself. And bubbles uh, of ice bur bursting will be prominent sounds in the Arctic. And mostly marine animals uh, communicating across vast distances below the ice. The other vignette could be in the Red Sea on a coral reef where uh, we would be hearing a soft cracking noise, which are a small shrimp that the males have a large uh, claw, and then they actually uh, snap the claw to generate a sound pressure that uh, stangs the prey, and then they eat them. So you can hear that very clearly, but that sound becomes very, no very noisy in the sunset. And also, as it gets dark, then the fish starts to communicate. And then you hear a lot of uh, what may sound like drums and, uh, and percussion sounds, uh, because most fish uh, do generate sounds with the swim bladder, so it's rather like a drum. And then uh, you will have choruses of fish that use this sound to uh, attract uh, mates and also to uh, synchronize the spawning. So we will have these sounds. And then uh, one of the most recently discovered sound that will be here uh, nearby coral reefs. And it's a sound like very gentle bells. And uh, that sound is actually from the bubbles 
oxygen bubbles produced by seagrass and kelps. As they uh, rise to the surface, then the pressure release uh, decreases and the bubbles grow and at some point they burst. So when they burst, they generate this scintillating sound, which I had heard in the past and it was only disclosed what it was last year. So that what you're actually uh, listening uh, then is the sound of uh, photosynthesis and the sound of oxygen being released from the ocean to the atmosphere, which is incredible that you can actually hear photosynthesis and oxygen being released for us to be able to to benefit from that uh, oxygen release from healthy marine environments. Yeah, there's something incredibly poetic about uh, a sound that we haven't heard until very recently being part of what is absolutely so vital to us as, as humans, uh, something like oxygen. It's yeah, in fact, there are many sounds in the ocean that we have no idea what what, uh, what is producing them. So that's why also we're working with colleagues working on uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to differentiate the features of, uh, for instance, fish or invertebrates or shrimp or other organisms communicated and classify these sounds. So what we're using is the same approaches that have been found effective in being able to resolve the problem of uh, uh, machine recognition of human speech, which now we use to, for instance, communicate with Alexa and Siri and those uh, <laughs> those uh, electronic assistants on uh, computers. Right. So we're using the same uh, approaches of uh, machine learning to be able to decode the language of the ocean, and we hope to have a breakthrough uh, soon on that. Um, last question. So, so it strikes me that it's quite sad in a way uh, that humans often listen to ocean sounds to go to sleep. It's it's clearly something that humans go to as a as a comforting noise. Um, why are you hopeful um, for the future of our oceans, even when we have that odd juxtaposition where we both we love the ocean and it calls to us. We, we enjoy it. And yet uh, we're, we're so bad to it as a species. You know, that's a very good point because indeed uh, we use a, a white noise and it's, it's been shown in many scientific papers that white, white noise generate well-being and white noise is really the cascade of turbulence generated by waves mm. breaking big waves uh, break into smaller waves that break into smaller waves and that generate a spectrum of sound which is white noise which is what uh, humans uh, genetically are engineered to uh, recognize at also our, our, our home. Humans, unlike the, the, the traditional paradigm, we did not evolve in the savanna coming down from trees. We actually are coastal, coastal mammals and to a large extent marine mammals. Mm -hmm. So uh, ocean is home. Crossing disciplines and crossing borders. Science Town. I was part of the meta-analysis okay. that was run by Harry Harding okay. um, from uh, Exeter Uni. We put together all of the papers that have ever been done and all of the studies on animals and the effect of anthropogenic noise. That's Michelle Havlick. She's a Kaus doctoral student in the Red Sea Research Center. 
So it could be boat noise, it could be seismic testing, it could be experiments in the lab, it could be mm -hmm. whatever and whichever species. Um, and then we basically filtered that down and to put it in separate categories and see you know, actually which area has been most studied, yeah. what was the outcomes of that, whether it's whether the noise is good or bad or neutral. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that contributed one of the figures of the paper. What's the universe of research then in this space? Are we talking about 50 papers? Or are we talking about 5 million? Like where? When we first got into it, there was like 7,000 papers that popped up on our string, but we whittled it down. I think in the end we had 200 or so. And oh, then we wow. added some more papers from um, some systematic reviews and mm -hmm. other reviews that had been um, done on the topic. So what kinds of sounds, um, and anthropogenic being man-made, I yes. suppose, or civilization sort of sounds, mm -hmm. uh, what, what of those things was the, the most predominant that we could then dial back? In terms of most common mm -hmm. would be boat noise, okay. for sure. Just in the past... 50 years where boat noise started becoming more and more um, prevalent. They think that the noise levels have gone up by three decibels approximately Okay. in, in general. So that's like a big increase for a massive ocean basin. Yeah. Um, but as well, there's uh, noises like uh, seismic testing. Okay. It's very controversial and also um, deep sea mining. Which must be quite noisy if they're yeah. doing blasting and things. How does that work exactly mm. if there's a shipping lane? Mm -hmm. What is it what is it doing? So if a ship is even it can be kilometers away, mm -hmm. but you'll still have this really long carrying low frequency sound that can be picked up by lots of different um, animals. It it comes at them from all all sides, right. if that makes sense. Yeah. So for example, like a dolphin or a marine mammals, they evolved different ears to us whereas they have they don't have any ear holes in general they have ears that are on the inside but a really wide uh, tube between them hmm. and it's just becoming more evident that every species in the sea actually uses it for communication right. navigation and things like mating and right. yeah it's becoming more obvious that it's important to them. So, so that raises a good question. What are some of the negative impacts of man-made sound on organisms? They can be any of the different organisms. There are a lot and it depends as well on the noise mm -hmm. like you said. Um, if it's a very loud sudden intense noise like seismic testing yeah, it can affect the hearing threshold of the animals. So this has been shown especially in um, marine mammals and fish um, where their hearing temporarily or permanently changes. So temporarily, maybe they're able to hear like 50% um, less yeah. and just kind of dulled as if like we hear something loud, like a bang and your ears kind of ring. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing. Um, but it's very disorientating for underwater animals who right. rely on their sound to get around. Um, other things, it can induce uh, a stress hormone, cortisol, that can increase in the animal. It can also um, distract fish especially mm -hmm. and make them less wary of predators, for example. So it's been shown that there's a higher level of um, predation when there's boats around versus when there's not. I think they're, they're either stressed that there's 
some sort of threat around, but they're not paying attention to real predators. Interesting. Kind of like a deer in the headlights. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a Mm. distractor. But then the uh, predator species are like, great. I mean. They're distracted. (laughs) They're just going for it. Mealtime. I mean, I've been studying this for about a year and a half now. But at the beginning of my studies, I didn't really know that these environments like a reef or a kelp forest or let's say a deep sea trench all have their own sonic signatures. So you can measure them and characterize them. Um, And even on a reef, there's going to be different areas that sound differently. A lot of the sound is biological. mainly due to like invertebrates and snapping shrimp so if you've ever been underwater you'll hear kind of a crackling noise yeah especially here in the red sea yeah have you been snorkeling out? yes yes have you heard the crackling yes noise? Yeah. yeah that's a lot of tiny shrimp clacking their claws together and <laughs> uh, which sounds insane but there's yeah. thousands of them and they really make this baseline um and if you listen carefully enough using mm. a hydrophone and so you can find the next level of noise which is the fish communicating to each other in low croaks and oh, wow. um, buzzes and all kinds of sounds mm-hmm. clicks and yeah yeah which is it's crazy and it's really interesting to measure that all and then compare between the areas you can even find say the health of an area the yeah. more fish or so it has the louder it's going to be <laughs> that even um makes me think like the optimal human hearing is 20 hertz to twenty thousand hertz or something in that space yeah. but of course a whale is going to be speaking in much lower than that or also potentially much higher mm-hmm. so how do you even account for and, and deal with uh sounds i i suppose they're in that range yeah hydrophones Hydrophones. (laughs) the hydrophones can pick it up and then we even though we can't hear it Mm. they've got this amazing software you can put it in and visualize it okay so like i can see on like my recordings of the reef the low frequency sounds that i wouldn't hear but obviously the fish are um perceiving one of the co-authors jenna mm-hmm. um she created a six minute and I, I say she because i i just don't know who, who was all involved in the creation of it but she created a six minute sort of soundtrack of these things yeah. uh what what if any background do you have on that uh, yeah that was all her she's okay. such a cool artist <laughs> i haven't met her yet but i'm a total fangirl um and her recordings include um biological sounds like the ringed seals in the arctic yeah they're crazy like you heard them in the recording right yes, the yeah. trills and it sounds very otherworldly yes it makes the ocean sound so alien yes which i guess is pretty fair enough because we know less about the ocean than we do about space right 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 and it was really clever i think the way she then mixed in quite seamlessly these anthropogenic sounds yeah. uh, like i think she put in boats and also mining, I think, or pile driving or so, if I remember okay. correctly. And um, it just melts into it and it just takes over. It's really indicative of um, 
how it works in the ocean. Like whales could be chatting to each other. Right. Like the male whales have these incredible songs that they sing to the females, which are really important and it happens every season. But if a boat comes along, um, then it completely masks these calls. So in a, in a way, uh, humans are going about the planet as like the loud guy talking on the mobile oh, phone. Oh, totally. <laughs> oh, it's so rude. Like they're having a conversation. Right. And, yeah. That's very disappointing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe an aspect of this research, too, is arguing for wider um, spaces where rewilding can happen, where mm. you can't fish and you can't have a noisy boat uh, close That's by. A good point. In areas maybe we can't avoid the shipping noise or we can't avoid pile driving or mm -hmm. seismic testing or so on, there are mitigation measures. Bubble curtains, for example, are like uh, exactly what they sound, just um, releasing bubbles around the um, area of pile driving, for example, mm -hmm. which is like constructing the rigs for oil mining and so on. And does that hold sound in? Yeah, so it um, creates this kind of low-frequency curtain so to say and it um reduces the amount of noise that's coming out from wow. the pile driving yeah and so that from the small amount of studies that have been done on that it's showing positive signs um as a young scientist you, you're going to have a long time uh in the future uh with the ocean w what things do you want to see change it can be in the sound space it can be in anything what things do I want to see change? Yeah. Oh, ideally, I would love more people to get in the ocean. That would be amazing oh, to wow. actually see it themselves. Yeah. Because I think the connection fosters more, more caring. Like people are going to be more inclined to conservation if they've actually been in contact with something. I think people just being uh, more conscious of the way their actions influence the sea. Like we're not separate from it as much as people like to think that we are like we don't affect the sea only just by eating not eating tuna for example which is good no one should eat tuna we're all just one big symbiotic organism that yeah. relies on the ocean we're definitely not separate and i think the more we realize our actions have an effect on the sea the better i mean half of our oxygen comes from the sea exactly which i think a lot of people still don't know poor phytoplankton it's really not getting the kudos it deserves exactly. all going to beautiful trees but yeah <laughs> <laughs> and mangroves and seagrasses exactly and, yeah. mangroves seagrasses yeah. kelps thank <laughs> you so much for speaking to us really cool. thank you for having me yeah, really yeah. <laughs> you're listening to science town I'm uh, Dan Costa, um, Distinguished Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. I'm also the Director of the Institute of Marine Sciences here at the University of California at Santa Cruz. So I, I thought we'd just start talking about um, how this research started for you, you know, what was kind of the impetus and, and where has it led um, moving up to this paper, I guess. In 1991, I went back to as a program manager for the Office of Naval Research, and while I was there, a study had come out where they were measuring the speed of sound in the ocean to look at temperature. They realized that there are certain places in the, the world's ocean where you could put a sound source and hear it in virtually every ocean basin. So it was a really exciting experiment, but it brought up the issue that 
you know, if you put sound in the ocean, marine mammals in particular are very sensitive to sound. These animals use sound for to find each of their finder mates, to reproduce, to echolocate. So they both actively produce sound and passively hear sounds in the ocean. And so that was when my journey started. In our paper, we talk about how marine mammals have the broadest, most sensitive hearing. If you fast forward in the last, oh, maybe the decade or so, last 20 years maybe, uh, there's been an increasing awareness of a lot of organisms in the ocean use sound and that they use sound in ways we didn't we didn't really expect. Mm. The major impetus of the paper was to do what we what Carlos did by bringing us all together is recognize the large the immensity of the problem that we're not talking about just marine mammals we're not just talking about fish we're not just talking about squid or uh, or coral reefs it's this larger issue across the board and to to recognize that on a lot of aspects of human effects on the on the global environment sound is one of many of the things that we're doing and in many respects it's one of the easier ones to to control you know global climate change due to co2 co2 causes ocean acidification co2 causes changes in the heat budget of the of the of the climate those things if you stop producing co2 today the effects of that aggregated CO2 will stay with us for, for years. If you turn off all sources of sound, not that we could do that instantly, but if you turned off all sound sources, it'll reverberate for seconds to minutes, but the immediate effects of that sound source will go away. So it is a very tractable problem of, of all the problems that, that we're uh, responsible for. As a, a marine mammal, um, specialist in particular, what kinds of things do these sounds uh, do to them and the behavior that they normally exhibit? It can affect them in a variety of ways. One is masking, and masking is when you can't hear sounds, that the presence of that sound uh, makes it so you can't hear other sounds. And so we, you know, that's like you're in a cocktail party and everybody's making noise, you can't hear other people talking. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody in that party said something important, like, uh, you know, we got to get out of the room for whatever reason, you may not hear it. And so you can have missed behaviors. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're trying to find a mate, a lot of males will uh, have songs to display their capability, that they're a good male, they're a quality male. And humpback whales, we know that uh, humpback whales use sounds to... Um, get females excited or to compete with other males. And if if you have a lot noisy environment, that's gonna certainly change the ability of these animals to uh, sing and for those songs to be, to be heard. We know for some species that they've already increased the intensity of their, their vocalizations. Uh, there's work that was done on right whales that shows that when the males are displaying uh, in noisy environments, they actually increase the, the level of their sound, just like we increase the noisy room, we speak louder. In other cases, uh, the sounds may be important for detecting prey, for being able to locate prey, or also to avoid being located by predators. And so they've developed so sounds that, that work well for the ambient noise that they're in. It's not clear 
uh, how well they're going to be able to deal with the, the increasing noise that, that we've created, whether they go to higher frequencies. A lot of the noise in the ocean is lower frequency. So maybe they, they uh, might change the, the frequency of their calls. Some animals, the quality of their call is, is fixed. For example, dolphins have signature whistles. And so they basically, I think of it as, as our names. They have unique uh, whistles that are identify themselves and it helps them uh, coordinate their activities as a group. These are very, very social animals. We're still working on how those different song patterns evolve amongst individuals. person who has thought deeply and listened deeply to um, these sounds for decades, um, what is to you uh, a healthy soundscape? I'm, I'm sort of of the Cousteau generation. I got into marine biology because of Jacques Cousteau and, and that one of his first movies was called The Silent World. And that's because we don't hear very well underwater. The ocean is anything but silent. And one of the things that we talk about in our paper is the the um, biophony, geophony, and, and anthrophony. And biological organisms make a lot of sounds. And when you actually go to a pristine coral reef, there's a cacophony of sounds. There's a tremendous variety of sounds. What happens as we damage these environments, the biophony goes away. The diversity of the sounds of all the different animals living in the ocean goes away. And what we're left with is the anthrophony, the sounds that humans make and the geophony, which are the sounds of wind and rain, the, the, much, the, the sounds made by the physical environment. And it's a, it's a much less rich environment. And so we can actually start to monitor the quality of the environment by the diversity of the sounds that are made there. And so that's really what we want to maintain is that rich diversity of sound and not to let human produced sounds become the the predominant sound in the ocean. What kinds of population effects or, or things that you see in groups of these uh, marine uh, mammals, have, have we seen uh, that this is another stressor with encroachment on population, with, say, pollution or, or lack of feedstocks for them? What, what, what sort of things does this, if left unaddressed, cause or exacerbate? Yeah, that's actually one of the major research efforts I'm involved in right now is we're trying to look at how multiple stressors impact these animals. We know that multiple stressors can't be good. We can't think of these as a single stressor <laughs> in isolation. The animal's response depends on the context, whether the animal was feeding, whether the animal was uh, sleeping, whether the animal was migrating. And we also know that a disturbance of any form in a in a bad year, and what I mean by a bad year, if food is less available, is going to have a much more 
important impact on an animal than in a good year. If food is abundant, animals are able to respond much, much more readily to uh, a disturbance. It may not be that sound in and of itself is, this, is as bad as, as some other stressors, but if we can reduce one of the stressors and give the animals more room to respond, then that's certainly going to allow organisms uh, a better chance to, to survive. The, the other question you ask about population level effects, the fish community has been doing some amazing work with coral reefs and found that they have small boats running around a coral reef can change the population of, of small fish on the reef. And that's because apparently the small boats change the ability of the, the fish recruiting out of the coral reefs to hear their predators. And so they've been able to show a population level effect. We think of small boats, well, it's higher frequencies, it's not as loud, so it doesn't go very far. But small boats operate in shallow waters. And so the, the effects of that localized sound can be very pronounced in a localized area. They've also shown that uh, sounds on the coral reef are important to recruit uh, corals and other and fishes such that the organisms are actually sensing something about the sound on a coral reef, telling them that this is a good place to settle. So that pristine coral reefs have, have a lot of diverse sounds and uh, damaged coral reefs have much fewer diversity in the quality of the sounds so that uh, organisms don't tend to settle out as well. For those of us that study marine mammals, it's harder to quantify populations because our animals live longer. And so we've, we've spent our time looking at questions about how does it affect the feeding behavior, modeling what would happen if an animal's not able to feed as much because the sound prevented it from, from feeding, and then putting that into models of, of populations. You can create a marine protected area and reduce the small boat traffic and the, the, the localized impacts for these larger issues in terms of general sound in the ocean, that's going to become necessary to have a much larger international uh, effort to, to reduce, to just get a handle on shipping traffic and getting ships to reduce the noise they make. Who, if anybody around the world, is um, controlling or legislating this um, in a way that the rest of us might borrow from or learn from? Well, most of the, the initial regulations were on marine mammals because in, in the United States, we have the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which makes it illegal to, to change the behavior of marine mammal. That legislation, the U.S. has stimulated legislation in many countries where marine mammals are protected. So that, that's also one of the reasons that a lot of research has been done on marine mammals first, because there was a regulatory structure in place. So the European Union has regulations about sound and effects of marine mammals. Now, as these issues become more and more uh, understood, regulating bodies are starting to look at sound in and of itself and consider sound effects on other marine organisms. Right now, it's a country by country basis, uh, but that's one of the things that we hope that this paper will do, will rise the awareness that we need to start talking about uh, sound as one of the many uh, pollutants that, that humans are responsible for. Amazing. Daniel, thank you so much. Best of luck with the continued research that you're doing. Thank you. 
thanks to everyone that took part in this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Aries, and Julie West. I'm Nicholas DeMille. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.